You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss a Valentine's Day triple murder. Welcome back to Mysteries Still Unsolved. If you're new, welcome. If you're a veteran listener, welcome back. So pleased to have everyone all here with me today. How was your Valentine's Day? I had a good time, obviously, because I celebrated it with my one true love, my always and forever Valentine, Mr. Robert Stack. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you guys, I cannot believe how many people have like this undying hatred for Valentine's Day. I am shocked. I was asking some people like what they had planned just to, you know, like spark conversation. And so many people were like, oh, we don't do anything. We hate Valentine's Day. (laughs) How could you hate the day of love? I mean, I guess I can kind of understand like hating the commercialism of the holiday that is pretty lame and the pressure of needing to be in a relationship if you're not already in one. But guys, just get over it. I love love and I love to love. And it's not like I just like expressing that love to people in relationships. I take the opportunity to do a little something for all of the people that I care about. Friends, family members, neighbors, teacher, the world needs more love. We as true crime couch potato sleuths know this better than anyone. I also like to dress up. That's one of my favorite things to do. So yeah, I love Valentine's Day. If it's not your thing, that's okay. But next year, try my attitude on for size and let's see if you hate it any less. I mean, what do you have to lose? Nothing. All right. Thanks for your DMs about the case last week. I agree. The Torn Love Letters case is so fascinating. And I was very pleased to hear that some of you, after listening to my episode, went over to Let's Go to Court to hear their episode and they did an amazing job covering the case and the court aspect of it as well and this makes me very happy that some of you enjoy their podcast because again sharing the love I am not a jealous podcaster I know I'm not the only fish in the sea listen to all the podcasts support everyone's hard work just don't you forget about me don't 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 (laughs) In keeping up with this month's theme, I have another grisly case for you that has to do with Valentine's Day. But before we get to that, let's do a little housekeeping, shall we? I know it's not our favorite things to do, but it's got to be done. Um, if you're not already following me on Instagram at Mysteries Still Unsolved, um, why are you trying to hurt me? You know, you're hurting yourself too. It is a good time. You can see pics and videos from the cases that we discuss. You can DM me a hometown unsolved murder that you want me to cover sometime. I pop on stories every now and again to chit chat. If you follow me there, you'll also be the first to know about giveaways and announcements. I do little sneak peeks and behind the scenes footage. See? See? Uh-huh. I told you it's a good time. 
so you don't want to miss out. So follow me on Instagram at Mysteries Still Unsolved. Um, I also have a website. It's www.mysteriesstillunsolved.com. There you can binge my now 70 episodes. Uh, shameless plug. I'm also hoping that you all can do me a favor. And I don't ask you guys very much. So please just do this for me. Um, I would love for you to review this podcast on whichever platform you use to listen to your podcast. When you review Mystery Still Unsolved, when someone out in the universe is on the hunt for a new true crime podcast, the higher my ratings, the more likely they are to learn about mine. So if you like what you hear and you think more people should be hearing it, this is a great, quick, and free way to support my podcast. Other than that, um, I think we're golden. So what do you say? What do you say? Is it time to get started? Yeah. Let's do it. In 1985, 37-year-old Cassandra Rundell was looking for love. She had been married and divorced twice. She was a single mother to two children, a son and a daughter. Her son, Diedrich, was 12 years old and her daughter, Melanie, was 10. Cassandra was tired of being alone, but she was also tired of searching through a sea of Mr. Wrongs in order to get to her Mr. Right. She was not looking for a good time. She was looking for a soulmate. She was looking for a partner to go through this crazy thing that we call life with. So she did what many people did back in the 80s before online dating, before dating apps. She took out a few ads in the local paper. The first one she placed in July of 1984, and it read, quote, blonde, green eyes, five foot two, 95 pounds, seeking a rugged individualist. I am a free spirit, independent, well-educated, somewhat shy, sensitive, thoughtful, and I enjoy life. I am a one, one sorry, I am a one man woman looking for one good man. Please send photo and a short letter. The second ad was placed about a month later and it read, quote, warm, together, bright, beautiful, and modest lady seeking friendship with a gentleman of quality and character, 30 to 40 years old, end quote. Now, like I mentioned, today's case takes place in the 80s. And even though the 80s wasn't all too long ago, it may as well have been a different planet. <laughs> The 80s in a word is weird. That's honestly the best way to describe it. Weird. And I'm not saying the 80s were wrong or bad. They're just weird. Um, I know I was certainly born into the right decade because the stuff that go went on in the 80s like gives me major anxiety. I mean, for starters, you didn't have a cell phone or GPS. Ugh. The 80s was far too people for me. Like when you needed help or directions, you had to like get out of your car and track someone down and then ask that person to help you. <laughs> or if you wanted to get a boyfriend, you took out ads in the local paper and shared your home address with a whole city so a potential match could like send you a letter if they were interested. Cross your fingers. It was a kind and decent person with no ulterior motives. God forbid it was a sketchy person and then you were in real big trouble. No. If I was living in the 80s, you would have found me in a ditch in the fetal position crying. <laughs> if my name and address were ever associated together in a newspaper, I would like have to move like immediately. <laughs> 
Uh, but this was normal for the 80s because I said it's weird. It's just It wasn't too long ago, but it was super weird. And yeah, so as hard as it may be, we have to look at it through the lens of normalcy for that time period. Cassandra's two ads were good, very good. She got correspondence from at least 85 different men hoping that they would be the next Mr. Cassandra Rundell. I imagine she went on a date or two with a handful of them to see if any of these correspondences would likely lead anywhere. I mean, awesome. Great for Cassandra. She was a beauty and other people recognized it and wanted to see what she was about. However, unfortunately, this only makes this situation more murky. Because you see, on the morning of February 14, 1985 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Douglas Peltzer, Cassandra's second ex-husband, with whom she had remained friends, stopped by the house with a little gift for Cassandra and her children. He had purchased Cassandra a record that she had had her eye on and had gotten like little chocolates and toys for the kids. Douglas was not the children's biological father, but he had raised them for several years when he and Cassandra were married. Douglas knew that the children's biological father lived on the East um, side of the America. And so even though Cassandra and he had divorced, he still played an integral fatherly role to the two children. Cassandra was grateful and welcomed his help. Douglas knocked at the door, but no one answered. He found that odd as he had actually made plans with Cassandra to visit at that very specific time. He looked inside a window and noticed right away that the house just didn't look right. Cassandra was a very clean, organized, and orderly person, and Douglas would know he used to be married to her. So right away, something just felt off. Uh, he turned the door handle to the front door and found that the door was unlocked. He entered the home and entered Cassandra's bedroom. It was at this moment Douglas began making a series of grisly discoveries. Cassandra was found in her room on the bed, dead. Douglas next ran to the children's bedrooms, and both of them were also dead in their prospective rooms. Douglas couldn't believe what he was seeing. He called the Colorado Springs Police Department at 10.45 a.m. to report all of these terrible things that he had come upon. This crime shocked this normally quiet, idlewild neighborhood, and everyone wanted answers. Who could do such a thing? Not only to a devoted single mother who neighbors described as lovely, shy, and kind, but who would kill children? The lead detective on the case, Detective Cruz Rogers, commented to a Fox 21 reporter, quote, I don't think anybody deserves to be murdered, but especially when you start talking about children, they're so young, there's no reason why nobody would have a motive to murder them, end quote. The medical examiner assigned to the case reported his findings. The three had been brutally beaten, strangled, and murdered. The two female victims, Cassandra and her daughter Melanie, had both been sexually assaulted before their deaths. Based on the evidence found at the crime scene, the Colorado Springs Police Department assume that Diedrich had left earlier in the morning to play street hockey with some friends. Upon returning home, Cassandra's son, it is believed that Cassandra's son had walked in on the crime as it was in progress, and then the perpetrator felt he had no choice but to kill him as well. And then the killer proceeded to 
beat Diedrich to death with his own hockey stick. At first, police had plenty of suspects. I mean, 85 men had responded to Cassandra's ads in the paper. All 85 of those men had her address. There had also been reports of a peeping Tom in the area that ceased after the deaths. Not only did the Colorado Springs Police Department have plenty of suspects, they also had plenty of help. A ton of detectives were involved in the case, and not just Colorado Springs detectives. Detectives from all over the great state of Colorado came in droves, offering their assistance in solving this case. A lot of the community was really involved. Many people called in to leave tips and just give whatever information they could think of to help solve this crime. However, it's been 37 years today, and this is still the Colorado Springs Police Department's only unsolved triple homicide. So... Let's go over potential suspects, or more so people of interest, as no official suspects have ever been named in this case. Although the detective currently working on it says, quote, everyone's a suspect until they aren't, end quote, sadly, there doesn't really seem to be any serious suspects in this case, but I'm going to go over with you what I have found. As with most murders, people closest to the victims were interviewed first. Douglas was taken into custody and questioned at the station. There, it was determined after speaking with him and observing his behavior and, you know, making sure that his alibi checked out, it was confirmed that he had not been involved. Cassandra's first husband, Steve Sturm, who was also the father of Diedrich and Melanie, was also questioned. But like I said, he was living back east. I want to say Ohio. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Ohio. And he had a solid alibi confirming that that is actually where he was. Like, that's where he had been during the time of the murders. Then the 85 men who responded to Cassandra's ads were all brought in for questioning. Apparently, none of them stood out, so they let them go. I find this hard to believe, A, that they were able to find and locate and bring in each of the 85 men, and B, that none of them at all seems suspicious. I have a funny feeling that police have spoken to their killer, but with some smooth talking, he might have gotten away from them. But you never know. Just because 85 men responded to the ad doesn't mean the man that killed Cassandra and her two children were among those 85 men. It's certainly possible that someone saw Cassandra's ad and just went over to her home and started like stalking it out without ever responding to her ad. It could have been like a creepy stalker that she had no idea about, but her address is in the in the newspaper. So it was like fair game to anyone, good or bad. There are a lot of creepy people out there in the world, and some of them knew Cassandra's address. Or it's certainly possible that the ads and the people who responded to it could be a red herring and not have anything at all to do with the deaths. Cassandra's now late father always suspected to his dying breath that one man was a very strong candidate and that this man has been overlooked by detectives. The man Cassandra's father believes killed his daughter and two grandchildren is a man named Philip Edward Wilkinson. He first became aware of Philip in 1992 because in 1991 there had been a very similar crime that occurred in North Carolina. A 58-year-old woman and mother named Judy and her two children, Crystal, aged 19, and Larry, aged 11, had been murdered in a very, very similar fashion. The two women had been sexually assaulted, and then all 
three had been beaten to death with a bowling pin. The police in North Carolina had been investigating this heinous crime for 11 months when randomly a 24-year-old military man named Philip Edward Wilkinson turned himself into police. He claimed his consciousness had been wearing down on him and he made a full confession. Philip was tried and sentenced to death. He is still currently on North Carolina's death row. The similarities of these two cases are notable. However, unfortunately, there are a lot of sick people in this world. North Carolina and Colorado are also super far away from each other. Had Philip Wilkinson even been in the Colorado area before? It turns out, yes. Yes, he had. When he was 17, he was stationed at Fort Carson. Or maybe it was Fort Larson. I really have no freaking clue because I was watching this documentary about this case on YouTube. And the woman throughout the entire documentary was legit whispering. It was actually pretty creepy. (laughs) She also kept like tapping her nails together like this. Can you even hear that? And like tapping on her wine glass and making these loud gulping and sipping noises. I thought at first that they were nervous tics, but upon further investigation, somehow, somehow, I had stumbled across this ASMR true crime niche. Very good details. However, it was very hard to hear her. So I would 100% not recommend. (laughs) You see what I'm willing to do for you? I am willing to subject myself to 21 minutes of horrible ASMR documentaries to get you the details that you came here for. You're welcome. That is a labor of love. Oh, you know what? I'm just going to look it up right now. Okay, so let's see. Fort Carson or Fort Larson? Fort Carson or Fort Larson? Okay. So it looks like there's a Fort Carson near Colorado Springs. It looks like it's about 15 minutes south by car. So yeah, there you go. Mystery solved. I always hope we'd solve a mystery using this podcast medium. And now we have. Congratulations, us. Go us. (laughs) Philip had had the police called on him several times in the Colorado Springs area because Philip was also known as a peeping Tom. He was a peeping Philip. A habit Philip admits developed while he was stationed at Fort Carson. While he was on trial for Judy, Crystal, and Larry's death in North Carolina, he also admitted to having regular rape fantasies involving mothers and daughters. When this information was presented to the Colorado Springs Police Department, they were very interested in Philip because friends of Cassandra's had told them that one night at a bar, Cassandra had gotten chummy with an own an unknown man. The two really seemed to be hitting it off, and then it was only a week or two later that Cassandra and her children were found dead in their home. Could Philip be this mysterious barman? Like I said, Philip would have only been 17 at the time, and Colorado liquor laws explicitly state that no one under the age of 21 is allowed in a bar at any time. However, there are these things called fake IDs, and I hear that they were very common in the 80s (laughs) and also today. 
Uh, detectives in Colorado Springs threw everything that they had at this investigation and this lead and claimed that based on records they received from the military base at Fort Carson, it is basically impossible that Philip could have been involved because while he was stationed at Fort Carson on the date of February 14th, 1985, he was actually serving a tour in South Korea. Even with that evidence presented before him, Richard Rundell, who is the late father of Cassandra, would never relent. He was convinced that Philip was involved. The ASMR chick, I'll link her episode in the show notes, she made a really good point too. She said, peeping toms are kind of at the start of this cycle. It, if we like look at the patterns and the history of ser- serial killing, I mean, this is not a one-size-fits-all formula, but it usually starts with peeping Tom tendencies and evolves into breaking and entering. Um, That's when they usually steal mementos or trinkets as souvenirs. Think like underwear, bras, lingerie, that kind of stuff. And then this kind of develops into watching a woman breaking into the home and then um, committing violent acts like rape and murder. If Philip is being honest that this habit of peeping into people's windows began in Colorado Springs and then it evolved to the rape and murder of Judy, Crystal, and Larry, like, years later, that leaves a lot of stuff and a lot of time in between. Do you know what I mean? I hope that I'm making sense. Also, the DNA evidence found at the triple homicide in North Carolina was plentiful. It is much more in line with a first-time offender. A perpetrator's first crime is most often their messiest. It's chaotic. They don't really know what they're doing. They haven't like thought about every scenario. They leave traces of DNA evidence behind, like fingerprints and sperm and bodily fluids. This is what happened in the case with Judy, Crystal, and Larry in North Carolina. And this is actually how the police there ended up confirming that Philip was their man and that he wasn't just some random guy off the street telling them a false, giving them a false confession. However, at the Colorado Springs triple homicide, there is literally no DNA evidence at the scene. No fingerprints, no bodily fluids, no blood, no sperm. That would be highly unusual for a first-time offender. Certainly not impossible, but just really highly unusual. It seems more like the person involved in the Cassandra, Melanie, and Dietrich murder was more experienced, more organized, which are certainly not adjectives I think of when describing a then 17-year-old Philip Wilkinson. Detective Cruz Rogers won't say if any of the men they've investigated thus far are still considered suspects or if they have any new leads that they're looking into. I mean, it is still an active investigation, so it makes sense why she's keeping all these details close to the chest. However, she did say that she still has hope that this case can be solved. She says, quote, generally with cold cases, some of our biggest challenges would be time, but that can also be one of our biggest advantages, end quote. Detective Cruz Rogers continues, quote, like many things, technology has changed a lot over time, end quote. Um, She then goes on to say that whenever they reanalyze a case, they'll go through everything again with a fresh set of eyes. See if some evidence that they have might be beneficial to getting retested. Um, Perhaps there is a test that can show fingerprints where before 
there wasn't the ability to do so. Colorado Springs detectives are very hopeful that technology advancements will help them to solve this case. In fact, just four months ago, the same police department in Colorado Springs, where Detective Cruz Rogers works, they solved a year-old unsolved crime. Apparently, there was this woman named Chasta Rogers. Um, She was a homeless woman who had gone to a gas station with her husband riding their bikes. While at the gas station, her husband and another man got into an altercation. While attempting an escape on their bikes, Chasta was purposely and intently struck by a vehicle. She later died from the injuries. Um, DNA technology was able to link police to Jeremy Dwayne Jones. A wristwatch had been left at the crime scene, and this wristwatch had DNA on it that matched that of Jones. Then, when Jones's car was brought in, it had blue paint on it, which matched the blue paint on Chasta's bicycle. So, yeah, really, there's so many advancements in technology right now. Like, they're able to, they were able to solve this murder just using the sweat and hair follicles from a wristwatch and paint on a car. DNA has been given a lot of credit in some recently solved cold cases, but Detective Cruz Rogers wants to remind everyone that witnesses are just as important. Quote, people solve cases too, end quote. She then goes on to say, quote, one witness statement could bring this case wide open and everything could fall together, end quote. Just because it's 35 years later doesn't mean that they won't solve it. We need to keep these little unknown, unsolved cases at the forefront, not only for the awareness of the public, but also so that the police involved know that we are still committed and interested in solving these cold cases. If we continue to express interest, then police departments will be more willing to move funds around to cover costly DNA tests using taxpayer dollars. The more interest we give, the more resources magically appear. Cassandra's ad mentioned that she was looking for one good man. Unfortunately, in the end, that's not who she found. And now the Colorado Springs Police Department is looking for one sick, twisted, and pretty much purely evil man. If you have any information regarding this case, please call the Colorado Springs Police Department. They can be reached at 719-444-7000. When they answer, just ask to speak with a homicide unit and they'll get you over to who you need to talk to. What do you make of this case? Who do you think is responsible for this triple homicide? Do you think it was one of Cassandra's ex-husbands? Do you think it was someone who responded to or just saw her ad in the paper? Do you think it was Philip? Do you think it was this mystery man from the bar? Let me know at my post I made about this episode on my Instagram account at Mysteries Still Unsolved. I would love to hear your thoughts, theories, comments, and opinions regarding this case and all of our other past cases as well. I hope one day soon we'll find resolve with this case and that the person responsible for this heinous crime will be brought to justice. I hope if anyone has any information regarding this case that they are brave enough to make the call and get things put in motion. Maybe back in 1985 you felt scared, helpless, or threatened, but now things have gotten better and you don't have to hold back anymore. Get this off of your chest. I promise you, you'll feel better after doing so. 
Thank you all for joining me today. I am so incredibly grateful that you are here spending upwards of 30 minutes with me each and every week. I know that there are so many other things that you could be doing, so many other podcasts you you could be listening to. So I greatly appreciate your time and your loyalty. Thank you for supporting me and my work. It truly means the world to me. Do you want to know how you can further support this podcast? Of course you do. Follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Visit my website at www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Leave me a review wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Tell a true crime-loving friend or family member about me. And it doesn't just have to be a friend or a family member either. Tell your dental hygienist, your carpool mom or dad the clerk at the grocery store, the milkman, shout it from the rooftops in your bathrobe. I want everyone to know about Mysteries Still Unsolved. But the best way to support me would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>